Okay, so as we heard, we are starting today a new preach series. Uh, last year, if you were here with us in autumn, you may have remembered we looked at Paul's letter to the Romans, chapters 1 to 4, under the title, The Gospel, God's Power for Salvation. We were exploring what does Paul say about this good news of what God's done in sending his son, how that has the power to save, and how that can equip us to be involved in God's mission of going out and reaching more people with that good news. And now this autumn, we're coming back to that same letter, and we're going to look at chapters 5 through to 8 under the title, The Gospel, God's Power for Christian Living. Looking at how the gospel equips us to be followers of Jesus. My uh, glamorous assistant will just assist me. How many elders does it take to uh, fix a microphone? Um, great. So you might remember, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, one of the guys commissioned by Jesus to get the early church going, in about 57 AD. So we're kind of 25 years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, where he went to be back with God the Father. And this is a church that Paul didn't plant. He's not actually yet been to Rome. He's not met these guys. But he wants to go to them so that they will help him get across to Spain, because he wants to preach the gospel there. And he's heard some stuff that's going on. He's heard there are divisions and problems in this church, particularly between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And he speaks about how the gospel can bring unity to bring them together. So we saw chapters 1 to 4 are all about God's power to intervene and to save. And we saw that before he can get to that, the good news as it were, he has to outline the bad news. From the second half of chapter 1 right through to halfway through chapter 3 is all about the problem that Jesus comes to save. The problem that means actually all of us are under the wrath of God, the just and fair and right punishment of God. Because Paul points out actually all of us in that situation, because we're meant to be able to look around us and we see from what God has made that he exists. And we see that we should give our thanks and our love and our worship to him, and yet all of us start our lives not doing that. All of us fail in our obligations to our creator and therefore, all of us are under the wrath, the judgment, the punishment of God. And in chapter 2, we saw Paul turns to the kind of religious Jews of his day who are thinking, yes, aren't those people terrible who worship those idols and do all that stuff? And he says, hang on a minute, you're just as bad. You do the same stuff and you think that things like having the law and being circumcised, or for us it might be going to church or being a good person, you think those things will protect you from the judgment of God. He says, no, those things can't protect you. God's looking at the heart. God's looking for a transformed, renewed heart, not at the externals. And he reaches this very gloomy conclusion that no one is righteous. No one can stand before God not guilty. All of us are under God's judgment. All of us are deserving of God's wrath. And it's against that very gloomy, depressing, scary backdrop that Paul brings in the good news of the gospel. That God so longs to be in relationship with us, he made a way for it to happen. Now, we couldn't overlook our sins because that would be unjust and God cannot be unjust. And so the just God found a just way to justify sinners. In sending his son who died as a substitute for us, as a sacrifice for us, he paid the penalty that we were due to pay. And because of that, God can forgive and God can declare not guilty. 
God's declared we have a right legal standing before him so we can be reconciled to him. And in chapter 4, he explained that all is received by faith. It's always been the way. He says, Abraham, it was true. David, it was true. All through the Old Testament, it's always been true. You're justified through faith. You don't do stuff and earn it as wages. You take hold by faith of the gift which God is offering. So Romans 1 to 4 were all about God's power to saving, kind of a present salvation. It's the question of how do I right now get into a right legal standing before God? And then with chapter 5, where we start in this series, we had a bit of a shift. There's a, a new focus. 1 to 4 are about present salvation. 5 to 8 are about future salvation. It's all very well knowing right now that God says I'm not guilty as I've trusted in Jesus, but there's still going to be a day further down the timeline when I have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. How can I know that on that day, the verdict will still be not guilty, will be righteous? And that's the kind of question that Paul is wrestling with in these chapters. And as he does so, he tells us a load of stuff about Christian life. Actually, most of what he talks about is what the Christian life now looks like, which will be justified on that day. And that's why we've called this series The Gospel, God's Power for Christian Living. We're asking how does what Paul says about the gospel in these chapters equip us in our daily lives to be faithful followers of Jesus. And today we'll start with the first half of Romans 5, looking at two key foundations for Christian living. But just before we jump into that, let me recommend to you a few resources. You might want to dig into Romans a bit more deeply over these series. Actually, the same resources I recommended last year. First is this book by Tim Keller called Romans 1 to 7 for you. There's also a volume Romans 8 to 16 for you. We'll get to 8 in this series as well. This is a really helpful, really accessible explanation of what this letter says, kind of bite-sized chapters, uh, questions to discuss if you're reading a pair or a small group or just to think about on your own, if you're reading it on your own. If you want something a little bit more detailed, you might want a commentary, a book which is explaining in more detail what the Bible is saying. And this book by John Stott, The Message of Romans, is a great kind of section-by-section explanation of Romans to help you dig in a bit more and see how it can apply to your life. And we also want to have a bit of a reading plan going. You might be aware over a few pre-series recently, we've run a reading plan in our uh, app to help us be reading the Word of God day by day together. And so each Monday on the app, in the blog, and on the website on the blog, we're going to post the passage we've talked about on the Sunday with a few questions for you to have in your mind as you think about it and wrestle with it, to work about how does this apply in your daily life. So I'd encourage you to make some time each week to reflect on what we're looking at together and to read those passages. Today, then, are these two first foundations of Christian living from Romans 5, verses 1 to 11. And let's start by reading those together. Paul is, begins to talk about the outworkings of everything he said in chapters 1 to 4. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul gives us these two foundations, and they're all rooted in what he's already said. That's what the word therefore means. Therefore means I've said all this stuff here, and that means that all of this stuff here is true. And he actually explains that. He says this is since we've been justified by faith. Because we've been justified by faith, these things are true. Because we've taken hold of that promise of the gospel and received that right legal standing before God, these things are true. Which is a wonderful encouragement, but it's also kind of a warning. Paul's saying these things are only true if you've already responded to the message of one to four and you've responded to Jesus' invitation by faith. And you may be here today and that's not true for you. And you're kind of listening in thinking, this stuff sounds really interesting, but I don't think that's true for you. Well, you know, there's kind of a warning here, but it's also an invitation. Now, Jesus always gives the invitation. His arm is outstretched wanting to give us this gift of justification, a relationship with him. And all we have to do is trust that promise to take hold of it. Friend, you might be listening in today. Well, that's a step you can take, actually. There'll be a chance for that a bit later to say, no, I want to respond. I want to take hold of what Jesus is offering. I want these things to be true of me. And so what happens when we're justified by faith? Well, the first thing, the first foundation of Christian living is that we have total and utter acceptance by God. Paul says, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And that's a huge thing for Paul to say, because previously there was a major absence of peace. Paul said previously the wrath of God was being revealed against us. He said in chapter 2, 8 and 9, previously we were storing up wrath against ourselves for a day when there would be wrath and fury and tribulation and distress. In this very passage, he says previously we were enemies with God. There was hostility, animosity between us, a major lack of peace. But now, he says, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace. And this isn't just talking about a kind of subjective feeling of peace, although that's probably involved. This is an objective reality. Now in this relationship between me and God, there is peace. There is reconciliation. There's no hostility anymore. There's complete and utter acceptance. If you're a Christian, God's constant and default position towards you is one of peace. You have peace with God. You are no longer his enemy and you can never again become his enemy. You are never uh, under the wrath of God and God will never, ever punish you. You have complete and utter peace, complete and utter acceptance. And that's a vital foundation for Christian living. And Paul tells us that happens through Jesus. And he says also through Jesus, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. He says, through Jesus, we've been moved into, kind of stood in, placed in grace. And grace is a bit of a a Christian lingo word, really. Grace means God's favor to those who are undeserving. The word actually just means gift. It's a standard Greek word for gift. But in the ancient world, you gave gifts to people you thought were worthy. So they didn't earn gifts. If you earn something, it's a wage. You get it for the stuff you do, it's a wage. They were freely given, but they were given because you are a worthy recipient. I feel you have worth to receive this gift. But you know, the radical thing about the grace of God in the gospel is that he gives with no regard to worth. He doesn't look at the normal things that we humans would look at, like our status or age or sex or job or ethnicity. Those things don't matter when it comes to God's gift giving. He gives without regard to worth, and he gives 
even though we are utterly unworthy. He gives even though we've rebelled against him and rejected him, he gives to those who are utterly unworthy. God's grace is his goodness and favour shown to those who are utterly undeserving. And Paul says here we've been stood in it, placed in it like it's a sphere we live in. It's a, a shower, a waterfall we stand under. It always reminds me of Eeyore. I've got a picture of Eeyore. It's me of Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, who's this dear little depressed donkey. And wherever he goes, even if it's bright and sunny, a lovely day in the Hundred Acre Wood, Eeyore has this little rain cloud over him. And it's always wet and stormy and cloudy and miserable where Eeyore Eeyore has his own little personal rain cloud, his rain shower. Well, friend, if you're a Christian, you have your own little shower of the grace of God. That wherever you go, it follows you and rains down on you undeserved favor. And that's so important to get. Get what Paul's saying, because what he's saying is it's not just that when you became a Christian, you were kind of cleaned up back then. It's very easy to think, yeah, yeah, I was cleaned up and made perfect then, but then I've done this and this, and I'm still struggling with this, and I've got messy and mucky and dirty again, and I'm not really sure God loves me. I kind of think I've totally blown it. I'm not really sure it sets me. Sometimes these things happen. I think he's actually punishing me. We think it happened then, but now I've kind of made the problem. Friend, Paul says you stand under a shower of God's grace. That means that right now you're as perfect in his sight as you were the first moment you responded to Jesus. He always, always fully accepts us. If you're a Christian, you live in the sphere of God's grace. That means, Paul will say later, there is no condemnation for you. Not one bit, he literally says, of condemnation for you. God's wrath will never be poured out on you. You will never be punished by God. He will only continually pour undeserved favor and goodness over you. This is foundation one you have to have in place for Christian life. Knowing that now and always you'll be fully accepted by God. And that always bit is how it fits into the future thing. How do we know that on that day we'll still be accepted because we're stood living life in the grace of God? It wasn't just a clean-up job back then. Actually, it's standing now, showered in the grace of God. And this is vital for lots of reasons. If you don't really get this and really believe this and take hold of this, it will always hamper your life following Jesus. If you don't really believe this, you'll live under guilt and condemnation. So conscious of the things you've done wrong, the things you haven't done you think you should have done, and that will just rob the joy that God wants you to have in life with him. If you don't really get this and take hold of this, you'll live with shame. Just so ashamed of things you've done and thinking, oh, if people really knew what I was like, if people really knew this stuff I've done, no one would like me. God doesn't really like me. I'm so ashamed of this stuff. If you don't really accept this acceptance God has of you, you'll live with that. And also it will hinder your growth. You know, sometimes as Christians, when we are aware of kind of patterns of sin in our lives, things we're doing we don't want to do, we think we need a good dose of guilt and shame to help us to get beyond it and get, off, get, um, get rid of it. We beat ourselves up about things. But friends, that is not the way to do with sin. That will never actually help you change how you're living. There's a place for conviction, which is God making us realize the things in our lives that are wrong. But guilt and shame and condemnation will never help you change. When we feel guilty and ashamed, we feel uncomfortable. We want something to comfort us and help us. And so often, we will run back into the thing that made us feel that way in the first place. We ran to it in the first place to make us feel good. We run back to it to make us feel even better. And it becomes this cycle we're trapped in. The way to break free from sinful patterns in our life is to start from a position of knowing, I am utterly accepted. Peace with God stood in his grace. 
Interestingly, psychologists have found that this is the fact. The psychologists talk about something called the fresh start effect, which is if you start a new behavior, a new habit, after having a clear break with the past, you're more likely to succeed. So you're more likely to succeed in starting a new habit at the start of the year than you are partway through the year. Psychologists have even found you're more likely to succeed in a new habit you start on a Monday than you are later in the week with a sense of a fresh start. Well, the gospel is the ultimate fresh start. Whatever has happened, it's done with, it's dealt with. I'm accepted. I'm loved. Now I can go again in seeking to follow God. This is a vital, vital foundation to take hold of. I think Romans 5, 1 and 2 are some of the most important verses for Christian living. Memorize them, stick them up, pray them, meditate on them, sing them, take hold of them. And when you feel guilty or ashamed, speak them to yourself to battle to live in the good of them. Foundation for Christian life number one is knowing you are always fully accepted by God. And the foundation number two in this passage, what really the rest of the verses are about, is hope. That we get to rejoice in a future hope. Paul says, since we've been justified by faith, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And here with the glory of God, he's thinking about the future. In chapter 8, a little bit later, he'll say, talk about this glory which is going to be revealed. And he shows us there, he's talking about the day when Jesus returns, when we are raised from the dead with new bodies, where there's a new creation and everything is fixed, everything is put right. He's talking about new creation and resurrection coming. Because, you know, the Christian hope isn't eternity spent in heaven in some kind of cloudy place. If you're a Christian here today, you're not going to spend eternity in heaven. You're going to spend eternity in a resurrected physical body, in a perfect new world where everything is as it should be. All pain and sickness and suffering end, and we are with God forever. And Paul says that because we've been justified, we can rejoice in the hope of that future. Not a kind of wondering hope, or maybe it will happen. Not a wishful thinking, oh, I hope it happens. A sure and certain hope. This is coming. And he says we rejoice in that. Other translations say we boast in it. Not as in, oh, aren't I so good? As in, oh, isn't that so amazing? Or some translations say we glory in it. We're meant to revel in it, enjoy it. We're meant to get excited about what's happening at the end of the timeline. But even as Paul says, we now get to rejoice in what's coming. He knows the reality for every one of us at different times in our life will be, that's wonderful, but right now life feels tough. That right now there's suffering and pain and difficulty. And he knows as he talks about that, he also has to talk about, well, how does real life, day-to-day suffering, difficulty, fit into that? And he says something quite staggering. We rejoice in this hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Just notice what he says. He doesn't say we rejoice in spite of our sufferings. He doesn't say we uh, rejoice even in the midst of our sufferings. He says we rejoice in our sufferings. It's the sufferings themselves that we get to rejoice in, which sounds a bit crazy. We think, well, why or how? How can that actually work? It's because Paul knows suffering does stuff. Suffering handled well actually grows us and grows our hope. Suffering, he says, produces endurance, the strength to just keep on going. And endurance produces character, a proven, tested, good character, and character produces hope. As our character grows, our hope for that day will grow and grow. So as Christians, we can rejoice even in the suffering we face because we know that God is doing something in it to do us good. Suffering is like exercising a muscle. You know, the only way to grow a muscle is to use it and stretch it and put it beyond what it's used to. 
Well, actually, the Bible seems to suggest one of the main ways we can really grow in our relationship with God and our hope for the future is by being pushed beyond, by being stretched and being challenged. And many Christians throughout centuries of history, many of us in this room today, would testify often the most difficult times in our lives are the times we've most grown in God and most grown in our hope for that future. In my own life, I can look back at horrific seasons and say, it was so horrible, but I'm actually so glad I went through it because God used that to shape me and change me and shape my hope in me. Christian living will inevitably bring suffering. That is the promise of the New Testament. But it's an opportunity to grow and develop a stronger hope. doesn't make it easy always. doesn't take away the pain. Some of us will experience real pain. But actually there's something sustaining in knowing that God can use this. God is working in this. And the rest of the verses, Paul really just takes up this idea of hope and just further helps us to get to grips with it. And particularly he wants to wrestle with the question, how can we be sure? That hope is a, a way away yet. How can we be sure of it coming? How can we have a, a certainty about it? And he gives us two reasons. The first reason is the love of God. He says, hope does not put us to shame. It won't prove false because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given us. We can be confident of the hope then because we experience the love of God now. And part of how we experience that is God himself, the Spirit of God, has come to live inside of us. He pours the love of the Father into us. There's an internal witness of God saying that he loves us. And actually, though, Paul then explains this internal witness of the Spirit by reflecting on the external witness of what God has done in Jesus. This is fascinating bringing together of the Spirit inside and the work of Jesus, as it were, outside. He says, for while we were still weak, well, we were utterly unable to do any good, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And Paul's basically saying, well, that must be love. If we were unable to do anything good, we were utterly ungodly, what can explain Jesus dying for us other than that he loves us? There is no other possible explanation. And he gives us this kind of human illustration in the next verse to explain how radical that love is. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, which is probably someone who kind of does the right thing, but in quite a clinical way, not really impacting you. Scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone personally good to you, perhaps one day even to die. He says you're unlikely to die for someone just because they're good. You might die for them if they're good for you. But actually the radical thing is Jesus dies for us when we are not good and when we are certainly not good to him. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's unlikely someone would die for someone who's righteous or good, and yet Christ dies for us when we are sinners. What can explain that other than incredible, radical love? So if you want to know whether God really loves you, the key thing to do is to look back at what he's already done for you. Look at the fact that Jesus died for you when you were a sinner, when you were utterly undeserving, when you had done nothing to merit anything good from him, he died for you. And Paul seems to link this spirit pouring the love of God into our heart and the looking at what Jesus has done together. And he seems to imply one of the ways the spirit pours the love of God into our hearts is as we think about and reflect upon what God has done for us in sending his son to die for us. The spirit uses the truth to work in our hearts. And a little bit later, we'll have a chance to respond by taking the bread and wine to reflect on what Jesus has done for us, the demonstration of his love. And I'm in confidence that as we do that, the Holy Spirit is going to pour the love of the Father into our hearts, and our hope is going to grow. 
But Paul has one more reason why we can be certain of that future hope that we can now rejoice in. How can we be sure of it? Will God really do that for us then? But Paul says, yes, we know he'll do that for us then because we can look back on what he's already done now. He gives two statements, verses 9 and 10, both of which are what we might call a greater to a lesser. If God's done this incredible, difficult, amazing thing, then of course he'll do this comparatively simple thing. If God's done all of this, then of course he'll do this little thing over here. It's a bit like uh, imagining a friend lays on a dinner party for you. They have cooked a veritable feast of all your favorite foods. There's your favorite wine or drink. They've laid out the table beautifully. They invite you to come and sit and eat, and you find you have no plate and no cutlery. In that moment, you're not going to go, oh dear, I-, I-, I wonder if they would mind giving me a plate. Or I wonder if I dare ask if they're going to be willing to do that. You're not going to think that. You're going to think, look what they've done for me. Of course, they're going to give me a plate and some cutlery. Paul's saying, look what God has done for you. Of course, he's going to do this comparatively small thing. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, a huge thing, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We've already, right now, been justified by his blood, so of course he's going to save us on that day when it comes. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, a huge thing, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If God intervened to reconcile us when we were enemies, utterly undeserving, at odds with him, then of course, now that we're his sons, of course, he will save us. Why wouldn't he save us now when he's already reconciled us to himself? And so how can we be sure of that day? How can we be sure of that hope coming? It's because we look back at, look at what God has already done. If he's already given all of this, how can I think he might not do this? The second foundation of Christian living is hope. A sure and certain hope of future glory in a new creation, everything put to rights. Every tear wiped away. Every moment of difficulty taken away enjoying perfect, perfect communion with God. And Paul's focus is very much being on the future, our our hope that future salvation from the wrath of God. And just in the last verse, he kind of brings us back to the present for the moment. He wants us to reflect on glory in that, but he also wants us to not overlook what we've got now. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice in our hope Verse 2, we rejoice in our sufferings. Verse 3, we rejoice in God himself because now we have reconciliation. It's back to the full acceptance. He's come full circle. We are reconciled, brought back to God, back to relationship with him. Maybe the band can come up at this point, please. Paul wants us to know that if we've been justified by faith right here, right now, in this life, then all of these things are true for us and we can have utter certainty that when the day comes and we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, as every single one of us will, we will be accepted. We will be justified. We will be welcomed into eternity with him. This is a promise for us. It is a reassurance for us. And in the process of doing this, Paul has laid out these two foundations of Christian living. Foundation number one, that we have total and utter acceptance by God. No more condemnation, no rejection, welcomed in, loved and delighted over by God. Stood under grace. And foundation two, that we have a hope, a sure and certain hope 
to rejoicing. Which grows and is confirmed as we experience God's love through his spirit and looking at his acts. And grows as we think, look what God has done. Of course he will do that for us. All these things I said flow from being justified by faith. I said it, maybe you're here today and you've never made that kind of response to Jesus. You're listening in thinking, this stuff sounds amazing. That hope sounds amazing, but I know it's not yet mine. Friend, the invitation is there to you today. Jesus says, come to me and he will rescue you. He will save you. He will transform you. Okay, God, you surrender to him. The Bible says we repent, we turn away from our old life and we believe, we trust in God to accept us. Friend, you can do it today. Even as we worship and take bread and wine, just a moment, you can do that in your own words. You don't need fancy words. Say what it is you want to say to God. And if it is you, then grab someone at the end, someone you came with or someone you know or some of the team down at the front. We'd love to talk with you, to tell you more, to pray with you. For those of us who have already made that response, now's an opportunity to reflect on these things that are true for us and to take hold of them and enjoy them. Maybe you've come here today just feeling really uh, tied up in guilt and condemnation. Maybe you're feeling really ashamed of what you've done or who you think you are. Friends, today as we take the bread and wine, it's an opportunity for you to reflect on the full acceptance, peace with God, standing in the shower of the grace of God. It's a time for us to think on that future hope. Maybe for you, suffering is just a big thing at the moment. Maybe life is just tough and painful and you're a bit fed up. Friend, today's a day to look ahead to the day when all that ends. All that will seem like a light and momentary affliction compared to the glory we enjoy then. And it's a chance to look back and look what God has done for me. How can I doubt that he will do that for me then? We're going to worship the bread and wine are here. If you're here today, you're not a Christian. We encourage you not to take this, just it doesn't really mean much to you. If you're here, you're a Christian from a different church, please feel very free to take it. We take the bread remembering the body of Jesus broken for us. We drink the wine remembering the blood of Jesus poured out for us when Christ died for us and we were still sinners. Should we stand and start to engage with God? I'm just going to pray. The band will lead us. Make your way to the bread and wine around the room when you're ready. Remember to do it in pairs. Remember to do it on your own and reflect on what God has done for us.